0: I think the first verse we're going to turn today is Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Last week, we ended up taking a sidestep to uh, teach something the Holy Spirit wanted in the moment. We taught on uh, being lively stones or maybe just yard ornaments. You know, either you're a lively stone in the construction of the house of God or you're just leftover construction material. We have a couple homes in our neighborhood that are still being built and every yard has the obligatory pile of sand and the cement mixer and the pallet of unused brick or cinder block because those, the guys, didn't get incorporated into the building. Some Christians are that way, though God always makes room for everybody. Some Christians choose to be the obligatory pile of sand or they want to stay on that pallet of unused, lively stones, and so we call those lively yard ornaments as opposed to being part of the building of God. I want to get back on track today and address the atonement, which is very critical and ought to be important to us as believers. And I started this two weeks ago because a denomination I was raised in at their recent annual or biannual meeting, they very rapidly, unanimously passed a resolution that said provision one of the understatements of it, it was aimed at the prosperity gospel. They were trying to uh, distance themselves from that, uh, the excessiveness, what I would call excessiveness, if they would call it a heresy, um, the excessiveness of the prosperity gospel, which says, give to me and you'll get, which I don't believe in. And I certainly don't believe that you got to give to somebody on Christian television. Uh, I believe you should support the local church and certainly the missionary, Peter and Paul both need money. The gospel is free, but it doesn't preach for free. If, if you had not been to the grocery store lately, you, you probably know it costs money to feed kids in the children's department. And it costs more than it did five years ago. So anyway, this denomination that I'm still affiliated with, they they foolishly and rapidly, because they didn't take their time uh, to pass this resolution, they basically said there is no healing in the atonement. And there is no provision in the atonement, which I made the point two weeks ago, which is kind of funny because it's probably the richest denomination in the country apart from the Catholics. And if you were to look at the price of the tuition to their universities, you better believe in provision to get into those seminaries. (laughs) <laughs> so that made me want to take a, a bigger step back I don't want to swing at the, the denomination. they were trying to distance themselves from the heresy of Christian television um, and in doing so they just ignorantly threw the baby out with the bathwater so I thought it might be a good time to go back and look at what is in the atonement because if you don't know what is yours you don't know to pray for it one great man of God said faith begins where the will of God is known And, of course, we know the Bible is the will of God. It's the will of God revealed to us. We have several New Testament scriptures. Ephesians begins with one of them. that says, be not ignorant, but knowing what the will of the Lord is. So uh, the will of the Lord doesn't have to be this mysterious thing where you just don't know what the Lord's going to do. Well, if you know the Bible, you have a pretty good idea. Well, you know, the Lord's ways are mysterious, only if you're illiterate or lazy. Or haven't walked with God for any depth of time. But if you have walked with the Lord and you have studied your Bible because you have an eighth grade reading level, then the ways of the Lord are not mysterious to you. That's a cop-out. When you try to put the, the ways of God into this ethereal, woo-woo, spooky mysticism, you're actually pretty much blaspheming God because he doesn't want to be a mystery, Paul said, I revealed to you the mystery. There are mysteries contained. And 1 Corinthians 14 says, when we pray in tongues, we do speak out mysteries. So there are those mysteries that are out there. But those mysteries reply to uh, what's the will of God for you 10 years from now. That's a mystery. God's not a mystery. Salvation is not a mystery. The kingdom is not a mystery. The church is not a mystery. The atonement is not a mystery. So one of the things, (laughs) the religious, I don't have an answer. So I'm going to just blame God is, well, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Or you just never know what the Lord's going to do. Yeah, you do. It's in the Bible. He's going to preach the word. It's going to build faith. People are going to receive from God. He's going to confirm the word signs following. He's going to rebuke. He's going to exhort. It's laid out in the scripture. When you study the totality of the Old Testament, you see the pattern over and over and over again. Any pastor who's pastored any length of time can look at a family and say, you're headed towards promotion. You're headed towards destruction. It's not hard. When you know your region, you know the pitfalls that the region has to offer because it's a pattern. It's a, it's a black hole of a vortex. If you don't walk with God, there's only so many ways you're going to destroy your life in this region. Nobody pioneers nothing in this region, including destruction. We have the same 10 different ways people ruin their lives here, and it's not the same as Atlanta. It's not the same as San Francisco. It's not the same as St. Louis. It's not the same as Detroit. So uh, we, when we... What Christians do when they are kind of subtly admitting I'm an ignoramus and I don't know the God I claim to love is the Lord's just so mysterious. And you notice we purposely put the southern accent on there to make him sound especially ignorant. He's just mysterious. You just never know what he's going to do. His wonders to behold. (laughs) Why did I always throw that in there? His wonders to behold. Well, you know, tongues prayed out those wonders in Acts chapter 2. So I want to talk about what's in the atonement today, and maybe use some of the logic. I was raised in a denomination, and uh, we didn't believe in the supernatural. We believed in salvation. Thank God for it. They get a lot of folks saved. Get A lot of folks water baptized, do great discipleship, but they didn't believe in the supernatural. They believed it passed away at either 70 A.D. or 90 A.D. or 900 A.D. They're not really sure which it was, whether it was the destruction of Jerusalem, because that was judgment on the Jews, so the church should suffer. Or maybe when the last scripture was written, which was the Revelation, which was about 90, 95 A.D., uh, except that wasn't truly codified or accepted until the ninth century. So anyway, somewhere in there between 70 A.D. and 1,000 A.D., supernatural power went away with, except that when a lot of those guys go overseas now, they see supernatural power. They just don't see it in their church. Now, I'm a scientist by training, and you know that. If I were to go somewhere overseas and see something wonderful and desirable, I wouldn't say, well, that just is for over there. I'd figure out how can I bring back those papaya with me or those mango or those bananas. If I saw something wonderful in Nigeria and I liked it, I wouldn't say, well, that's just for Nigeria. I'd figure out how they got it and what can I do to bring it to Tennessee. I don't understand the ignorance of a preacher to deny the power of God in his church in the US of A, go see it overseas in Ecuador or Puerto Rico or China and say, well, it's just not for the Americans. Or you just don't know what it takes to tap into the power of God. Now, years ago when we were in Botswana, we got to meet a, a pastor. He was a Baptist. He was the Baptist of the fir- a pastor of the first Baptist church in Zimbabwe. Now, he wasn't starting the first Baptist church. He was the fifth or sixth pastor. It had been started seven or eight years ago. His name was Kames Mavudu. We still keep in touch with Kames, Pastor Kames. And he's still close with Pastor Titus. We were in Botswana, but he was from Zimbabwe. They came over to be with us for a couple of days. And Kames said, yes, we uh, used to send our pastors to America to seminary until we realized it was stripping all the faith out of them. We'd send these pastoral candidates to the U.S. to seminaries to get them educated. And we sent them knowing how to cast out devils and heal the sick and raise the dead if necessary. But they went to seminary and came back and told us all this was done away with. And we think, wait, four years ago before you left, you were participating in all this. Now you want to come back and tell us it's been done away with. I said, that's horrible, Pastor Kames. He said, yeah, that's why we quit sending them to America. Because the seminaries were ruining them. So I don't know what it takes, maybe I guess 450 years of seminaries to finally bleach power out of the gospel. But we've done it effectively. And now when you don't have the spirit of God moving in your church, what does get to move? If you don't allow him to move by the Spirit of God to confirm the word with signs following, if that's a salvation message, you give him room to convict people to the altar. If it's healing, you give room for people to be prayed for to receive healing. If it's the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you give an altar call to lay hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost. If you don't give room to the Holy Spirit to move, how can you call yourself a co-laborer together with them? Which comes back to our concept that most churches may only be Trinitarian theorists. They like the concept of the third person of the Godhead. They just don't actually know him, much less have him participate in their services. They'll let everybody else participate, even those that aren't qualified to be on the worship team, but they will never let the Holy Spirit participate in their service because he might do something they can't explain or control. But you know, he just moves in mysterious ways. Why don't you let him move in those mysterious ways? Because the deacons will have a hissy fit. Well, tell them to put down their pack of smokes and get with God, and maybe they won't be so upset. So the current argument that the atoning work of Christ at Calvary only includes eternal salvation and nothing else is grounded in ignorance. Thank God we do have salvation through the work of Christ at Calvary. But our doctrine that I think almost everybody in this church holds, so this is not for you, but maybe to affirm your faith, is that according to, say, Deuteronomy 28, according to the book of Exodus and the promises of God to Israel, according to Galatians chapter 3, of well as many other uh, pastoral epistles and scriptures in the New Testament, is that the atoning work of Christ, uh, Calvary, purchased for us salvation and provision. That doesn't mean everybody's a millionaire. I reject that. That doesn't mean if you give to me, you become a millionaire and your mortgage is paid off tomorrow. That's a lie and that's a gimmick. Don't fall for that. But on top of provision, you also have healing, and we believe that. No greater prophecy than that than Isaiah 53 quoted in Matthew 8 and 1 Peter 2, 24. When you got three confirmations according to the numbers of Deuteronomy, it is a law, so how can you ignore it? All right, so we understand it. The three manifestations of His goodness and mercy are eternal salvation, natural provision, and bodily healing. By the way, those last two, provision and healing, are what every parent wants for their kids, even the pagans. Why would our Father in heaven be less than a pagan? I want to save you from hell. I just want you to live through it while you're here. Now we're going to be persecuted. Ain't no denying that. And all those that uh, live holy in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them the Lord does deliver. So we have that promise of both persecution, affliction, but also deliverance. The arguments and so-called evidences against healing and provision being in the atonement are never leveled against salvation. And this is what we need to be mindful of. I was raised denominational. I've run among denominational churches, but I'm also a student of the word on my own as well as reading everybody else's arguments. You've got to recognize that the arguments leveled against healing not being for today or for everybody and that provision is not for today or for everybody. They never point those same arguments at eternal salvation because it would be blasphemous so let's we'll look at those arguments here and see if we can't maybe come to an understanding why don't we level the same arguments for salvation that we would healing as being part of the atonement this is due to mainstream Christianity being somewhat versed in soteriology that's just a fancy word for the study of salvation but nearly completely ignorant of the doctrines of healing and provision now think about this most of the church, I don't know, 60% of the American church is ignorant on what the scriptures say about provision and healing, and yet every Christian wants both. We put our kids through college, master's degree, PhDs. We put them to seminaries or Bible schools. We want our kids to get good grades so they can get a good because we want them to be provided for, and we want them to be able to provide for their family. So we want it in our heart, but we reject it from the Bible that would make us maybe hypocritical we don't believe Jesus wants us healed every time but the first time we get a sniffle we run to the medicine cabinet or our kid breaks an arm if God doesn't want you healed every time why would you take that kid to the ER except to avoid TCS so do you see the hypocrisy here we're not against medicine we want medicine we just don't want God to heal we don't believe he wants us to heal. He wants to heal us every time. Well, if you don't, you don't think he wants you to heal you every time or wants you healed every time, why would you ever go get help medically? Our theology doesn't line up with our practicality. So it's not really our theology. We secretly do believe God wants us healed, which is why we believe in Sudafed and x rays and mammograms and Tylenol. And you name it. We got it. We even believe God wants our dog healed. God invented vets. Country folk invented shotguns, because that's how you fixed dog problems 100 years ago, unless it was a plow mule. Then you wanted that thing fixed, because that was your tractor. It wasn't your family friend or your BFF. The old gray mare was your John Deere. We're versed in soteriology, but completely ignorant of the doctrines of healing and provision, though such Christians will most certainly seek out both healing through medicine and provision through careers. So let's talk about these main arguments against healing and provision. And most of this applies to healing. Uh, There seems to be a little bit of a spectrum when it comes to the rejection of the atonement and the atoning package, and that nobody denies salvation. And everybody kind of wants to get a buck, but they know they can do that on their own. But then we certainly stiff arm and say, God doesn't heal anymore today, or he doesn't want everybody healed, or you just never know who he is going to heal. And so we kind of see a gradient. So these arguments apply more towards uh, healing more than they do provision, but I've lumped them in together. So it kind of goes like this. If healing is always the will of God, then why are there sick people? And if provision is always the will of God, why are there poor people? Okay, fair observation. You're beginning some entry-level scientific deduction. You see a statement and you see an observation. The two contradict. We have to find an explanation. Now you're beginning to study your Bible. Rather than just reading my utmost for his highest every day and calling that a walk with God. And I'm not against Oswald J. Chambers, but that's not studying the Bible. That's called a five-minute devotional that made you feel good in the moment. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right. If healing and provision is always the will of God, how come not everyone gets healed or prospered? If healing and provision are always the will of God, how come I prayed once for healing or provision and God didn't answer? These are questions people ask. And so what they end up doing is base their doctrine on experience rather than basing your doctrine on the Bible. Now if you base your doctrine on experience, you can be all sorts of weird. Because there's a lot of weird experiences to be had. Christians base their doctrine on scripture. We don't base our doctrine on experience. In fact, we're taught to judge every experience by the scripture. First John says you try every spirit to see whether they be of Christ or not. We don't submit to experience, we submit to the scripture. Part of prayer, by the way, is the force of faith to change experience. We pray peace and we change things around us. We pray wellness and we change things around us. We pray for people to be saved and we change things around us. So you, what we're really doing, if we, if we distill this down to the heart of the issue, we're dealing with Christians that walk by faith versus Christians that walk by sight. We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. If I have a Bible promise, and it says it very clearly, like most of the Bible is pretty clear, I'm not gonna believe anything but the Bible promise, I don't care what the world around me says. Because my faith is on scripture. It's not on a scientist, though I am a scientist. It's not on politics, though I dabble in politics. It's based on scripture. It might, my doctrine is not even based on my experiences, though I've had a lot of experiences. We don't base our doctrine on what we've experienced. We judge our experience based on doctrine. This statement, it condemns people when you say their faith is why they are poor or sick. That's a, that's a worthy observation. I will be mindful that Jesus did tell many people, your faith hath made thee whole. Usually those were the people that got healed and Jesus didn't even know it was happening. Remember that woman with the issue of blood? He said, wait, wait, wait. Who touched me? This is the son of God. Couldn't figure out which person out of that crowd had touched him. So what we're dealing with is there is an element where faith does make the whole. When we study a doctrine, we have to look at all the scriptures in every direction. That's called a theological hermeneutic. All right. If... Healing is always the will of God and provision is always the will of God. Why are you sick right now? Or for like me, why do you wear glasses? Why might you be in debt? So we're asking a question. These are questions that get leveled against these doctrines. If healing is always the will of God, provision is always the will of God. Why are Christians in debt? Why are some Christians sick? Why does the pastor wear glasses? Why is his left foot sore for six months? Because <laughs> he doesn't give it a rest from workouts. He pushes through it like a fool. I push through it like a fool, because I like food. Either way, I'm going to suffer, and it will not be my tongue that suffers. My foot can suck it up. I will run and lift weights, do burpees, deal with it, because I want ice cream later. If healing and provision is always the will of God, well, then the outcome is, well, we know, man, God has a plan. And if God doesn't heal you, it's because he has a plan. I've heard these arguments, and if, if God doesn't prosper you or provide for you, he has a plan. Well, they won't even say that with provision, because really, even in America, we know, if you're not prosperous, just work harder. Right. Yeah, that sounds almost, I mean, it's a good, it's a Puritan work ethic, but almost insult to God. Why not work harder with God? Right. Uh, you don't need God for that provision stuff. Boy, I taught you, go, go get a third job. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not against getting a third job if you need it, but it's really interesting. We are not consistent in our understanding or application of scriptures or arguments or defenses of our impartial doctrines or partial doctrines. So let us apply these well-intentioned but ignorant arguments to salvation. We know 2 Peter 3, 9 says that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth, right? And 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that he would have all come to the saving knowledge of God. And then, of course, John 3, 16, every football player's favorite scripture puts under his... (laughs) For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would call upon Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? We know these scriptures. Everybody, unless you're a Calvinist, everybody believes salvation is always the will of God. Right? Everybody, except for a Calvinist, believes that it is the will of God for everybody to be born again, for everybody to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he is not willing that any should perish. We believe that, not the Calvinists. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not even a partial Calvinist. I'm not even like a 52nd, 3rd Calvinist. I'm like not a Calvinist at all. We believe based on the merits of the scriptures that when it says he's not willing that any should perish, that means he's not willing that any should perish. That's basic soteriology. That's salvation. The gospel goes forth. To save the lost. So then, let's apply the ignorant arguments about healing. So if it's always the will of God for people to be saved, why are there lost people? Why is hell going to be full? I thought it was always and always and always his will that people be saved. If it's always the will of God that people be saved, how come not everyone gets saved? I've never heard these arguments outside of Calvinistic circles, which we are not in, just to be clear again. <laughs> How about, well, I prayed once to get saved, but I don't think God answered. Well, okay, then it must not be God's will, because you prayed once a prayer of salvation, and nothing happened. It must not be God's will. That's the same wisdom they apply to healing. I prayed once for God to heal me. He didn't heal me, so it must not be God's will. What kind of church, what church, what kind of prayer did your church teach you? Like one and done prayer, like a little simple prayer, like a weak prayer? What about persevering prayer? What about enduring prayer? What about uh, gospel-oriented prayer, where you ought to pray and faint not, having done all to stand, stand there for it? That kind of prayer doesn't exist in the church as much anymore. Uh, you know, it condemns people when you say they can't go to heaven without faith in Christ. It really beats them up when you tell them without faith you're going to hell, and if your loved one's in hell, it's because they didn't have faith in Christ. That's really condemning, preacher just like it really beats people up when you tell them their lack of faith is why they can't get healed. Well, so We don't apply these arguments. So then I would ask, if it's always the will of God for people to be saved, uh, why don't you have peace if you are saved? Why don't you have a beautiful marriage if both you and your spouse are saved? Why don't your Why aren't your kids saved? You're saved. Your wife's saved. Why aren't your kids saved? So these are questions and observations we can ask and make. We believe, though, it is always the will of God for people to be saved. I guess, then, that God has a plan, and it doesn't include everybody getting saved or having peace. You see the heresy of that line of thinking? Now, now here's the deal. These are good observations. And for the Calvinists, and I'm not picking on Calvinists because they are some stalwarts of the Word of God. They're doctrinal conclusion is people don't get saved because it's not the will of God and people don't make heaven because it's not the will of God that's basic Calvinism they weren't predestined to make heaven that's their logical conclusion when it comes to soteriology or salvation that's what they believe they got scripture to back it up I don't believe they have enough scripture to back it up, and I don't believe the bulk of scripture backs it up, though they do have the scriptures. And I don't fault them for that conclusion, because the rest of the body of Christ is a Calvinist when it comes to healing. Yes, sir. To me, that's hypocritical. You're an Armenian or a freewillist when it comes to salvation, but you're a Calvinist when it comes to healing and provision. Well, you're not healed because God has a plan, and it doesn't involve you getting healed, so don't go to the doctor. Mm, you're not prospering or your marriage is uh, on the rocks because your money is so horrible because God has a plan and it doesn't involve you having any money to feed your baby. Now, now see the hypocrisy. See the foolishness. It's not even logically sound. At least with the Calvinists, and again, I'm not knocking them, they're consistent. What happens, happens because God determines it. What doesn't happen, doesn't happen because God determines it not to happen. they are Calvinists when it comes to salvation, provision, and healing. You got healed, great. God ordained it. You didn't get healed. Hey, man, tough luck, but God didn't ordain it, so who are you to question the potter? Everybody else is somewhat confused because they think free will salvation is for whosoever will, but uh, sometimes you don't get healed because it's whosoever won't. So I would ask some of my denominational friends, why are you a Calvinist when it comes to healing, but an Armenian when it comes to salvation? It makes no sense sense to me. Bible students would never make the previous arguments against salvation because they understand the subject is much more nuanced than simply repeating a prayer at an altar. I think we all understand, Calvinist aside, um, that salvation is way more complicated than a prayer. I liken it, most of our doctrines, I I use the example constantly of the laws of gravity because we're all familiar with gravity. That gravity simply says if I drop something, it's going to fall. And yet every one of us would understand if I dropped something off a cliff on a windy day and it didn't fall, we'd instantly understand why it didn't. Updraft. We also would understand through experience if I dropped a feather on a still day, it would drop slower than a ball bearing. And if I dropped the both of them off a cliff on a windy day, the feather would go up rapidly and the ball bearing would still drop rapidly. And we would have instant understanding for why those phenomena contradict each other and yet still abide within the law of gravity. It's because we've been experimenting and being familiarized with gravity since we were six months old and began to play what Uncle Josh calls the stupid game. The stupid game is when your 6 six-month-old, takes a passy or a spoon, looks at mommy and throws it down. And mommy says, oh, that's so cute. She bends over and picks it up, hands it back to the baby. The baby's delighted. His little fat ankles roll in delight. His little wrists roll in delight. And then he throws it down again. It's a physicist experimenting or about to become the most miserable person in your life is what it's either a physicist or a punk in that moment, it's a little bit of both. We understand these divergences from the laws of gravity because we understand gravity. Then you get into physics and they teach you about the mass, the force masses have on each other. uh, And gravity is dependent upon the mass of a body and and anything with mass has a gravitational effect on one another. And here on earth, we have 9.8 meters per second squared. And there's atmospheric conditions and wind resistance and terminal velocity and, and et cetera. We get it. And we think, well, a simple prayer gets us into heaven, and a simple prayer, if it doesn't get us healed, it wasn't the will of God. That is, those, those misconceptions only expose a lack of biblical understanding and experience. So students are familiar with the following scriptures which build our understanding of God's salvation, the salvation that is available through the atonement. We understand... That the reason not everybody is saved, though it's always the will of God, is because not everybody's heard. Romans 10 summarizes us salvation in a nutshell. How shall they believe on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear except they be preached to? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach good news. How can uh, The Bible also says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So we understand folks don't get saved because they don't have the knowledge. That's why we send missionaries out. We send missionaries out also to developing churches to help bring them critical doctrine on governments, marriage, finances, missions, ethics, because they need to be brought up. They have a Bible, but they don't come to the same conclusion that a nation like ours with 450 years of seminaries has come to. So we go and we give them 450 years of ecclesiology worked out for them, and they were able to bring new churches, national churches. Some, some places in the world, the church has only been there 100 years. Can you imagine there are some places in the earth that there's only been a church, they've only heard the gospel in the last 100 years? And the first thing our forefathers did was build seminaries like Princeton and Harvard in the 1600s. That's a lot of Bible study to work out Theology. So yeah, they got a Bible. They're going to bump around in the dark until we send them missionaries who can explain, this is what church governments means. This is what ecclesiology means. This is what uh, eschatology means. This is what you want to do with this. This is what an elder is. This is what a bishop is. People are destroyed without knowledge. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. These are where I'm showing you the nuances we understand to why not everybody gets saved. And also... We have to answer the question, how come we did once serve God together, now they backslid, now they're living some egregious lifestyle, and they're probably going to die and go to hell? Well, we have an explanation for that too. Jesus Christ said, those that endure to the end shall be saved. I'm not a once saved, always saved guy. That's not my theology. But at the same time, I'm not a, you're going to lose your salvation like a set of keys in between church services because you struggle with something you're crying out to God over. There's a balance in there. Once saved, always saved, says you get a, say a prayer once, you're predestined, you can live any way you want to, and you're still going to make heaven. Some Christians would say, well, that means you weren't ever really saved to begin with, because if you were really saved, you couldn't possibly live that way. But other folks say, no, you can harden your heart and begin to take on perversion and wickedness. We also know that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but they have to hear that. We also know we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, Paul said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Not everybody's going to keep the faith. These are scriptures we understand create a very nuanced approach to salvation. But we don't deny salvation in the atonement. But we also know that for, even though Jesus died for everybody, not everybody's going to be in heaven. Jesus died for people who will reject him today and go to hell. If you follow modern American Christianity, you're watching the apostasy take place on blogs and pulpits every week. A slow, subtle divorce from the faith. Paul said, I kept the faith. Isn't that a weird thing to say right before he dies? He said, 2 Timothy 4, that's the last epistle he wrote, I have kept the faith. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. Why would you say that if it was something that may not be kept? He didn't say, I prayed a prayer once. I'm in like Flynn. Remember my Damascus Road experience we always talked about? I'm in. I'm going to go see the hookers tonight. He said, I kept my faith. And right now, our culture is teaching Christians to slowly divorce their faith. A little bit at a time. And you can only do so when you leave the scriptures a little bit at a time. And look for something that makes you feel good and tickles your ears. Yeah. Jesus said, he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. That's Matthew 24 and Mark 13. If it's twice in the gospel, it might be a little important. You know, when your professor mentions something to you twice, he says, this is going to be on the exam. And 20 minutes later, he said, did I mention this is going to be on the exam? For the Lord Jesus and the gospel writers to write something down twice, it might be on the exam. If you don't endure to the end, you don't get saved. Corinthians says, examine yourselves, brethren, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Paul's telling the Corinthians, prove it. Prove to me you're a Christian. Today, if you ask folks, are you a Christian, and you say, prove it, they get so offended. You ought to be, if someone says, prove it, that ought to hurt your heart that they can't see it. If they can't see it, that's your problem. If they can't see Christianity on you, Jesus Christ in you, that's your fault we don't need no Christian tattoo or no bumper sticker or T-shirt. Your life ought to demonstrate Christ. If it doesn't demonstrate it, get back with God and let your life shine. Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews says, if any man draw back, which means we can. And he's writing to Hebrew believers. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. So there is the ability to draw back. We get this. We call it backsliding. Some would say you can backslide and repent. Others would say you can backslide into hell. So I believe you can backslide so far you can't repent. I believe there comes a place where you harden your heart so far, like Esau, you cannot find repentance, though you seek for it carefully with tears. If it was not so, why would the author of Hebrews include that story and that warning? Don't be like Esau. Don't harden your heart. Who he traded his birthright for one morsel of meat, and when he would have repented, he could not, though he sought it carefully with tears. It was impossible for him to change the scenario. We understand this as part of soteriology. You don't just say a prayer, shake the preacher's hand, get water baptized, and get dunked, and don't have to make any fight the rest of your life. This is why we understand not everybody makes heaven. This is an easy question to solve. We don't apply this logic to healing, though. We just say, well, I prayed once, God didn't heal me, so I guess it's the doctor's job now. Well, if he doesn't want you healed, don't go to the doctor. A few more scriptures here on soteriology. Now the spirit speaketh expressly this is First Timothy 4: that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Some shall depart from the faith. You can't depart from something you were never in. And how do they depart? Well, Paul said clearly, by the Holy Spirit, by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Spirits have voices, and they also produce doctrines, and your faith is whatever you believe in. You can believe in a doctrine of devil, you can stick with the doctrines of Christ, and where you believe is where you'll go. We're watching the great falling away because Christians' faith is being slowly divested from scriptural doctrine and invested in TikTok doctrine and Facebook doctrine and Twitter doctrine, and your faith is whatever you believe. But just because you believe it doesn't make it real, and doesn't make it saving. We have to stick with the scriptures. Mankind is changing rapidly, but the Bible does not, and our God does not. We are living in a day where the church wants to change God into our image. That's that's nothing more than Philistine doctrine, where we want to take a a fish named Dagon and like, well, it's a little too fishy. Let's make a little bit more man, give it some arms. There we go. That's getting close. How about we give it some legs? Yeah. But you know what? If we completely get rid of the fishiness, it won't be Dagon. So let's keep the head of a fish. You know that Jesus, he looks too much like God. Let's bring him down to our level. Let's make him pro-drugs. Let's make him pro-gay because you know he's a lover, right? Let's even have some churches teach that he had an affair with Mary Magdalene or maybe John. Let's make him more like us. Let's make them all on the social justice tour. If he was into social justice, he would have protested public executions. I don't remember Jesus ever complaining about capital punishment. I remember him inspiring his disciples to say, hey, write this down. If you'll fear law enforcement, they don't bear the sword in vain. And then he told the soldiers, be content with your own wages don't exactly remember the Jesus of the New Testament marching except with a cross to his own execution at a corporate killing block. So we're trying to make Jesus into our image as it suits us. (laughs) I love it when um, the pagans want to quote our Bible back to us. And if they do that to you, we say, well, let's, if you want to have a Bible study, come on, let me show you some other scriptures. Because you're just cherry picking. Let me show you what the whole orchard looks like. You want to talk about that? Let me show you seven other verses. In fact, let's forget about your little political cause. Let's just look about your need for salvation because you are going to hell. And you have a worm there. And he will gnaw at your soul for eternity. And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's, let's, not, let's not go with this... Political justice junk. Let's talk about eternity, eternal justice. That's more important. Some shall depart from the faith, and they already are in these last days. How about Matthew 7? Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess in them, I never knew you, depart from me. You that work inequity. You know what they didn't say is, Lord, Lord, have we not repented of so many sin? Lord, Lord, have we not denied our past sinful to live for you? They just wanted to cherry pick the good they'd done for Jesus. And he said, I don't know you because all you do is what you want to do. We understand how a person can be born again twenty-five years and still be spiritually immature. Verses like this tell us how you can be in church for sixty years and not even know Jesus. We understand how a Christian can be born again in their spirit man and still struggle with emotional issues. We understand why we can be born again and still struggle with sinful habits despite having the old man crucified with Christ. We also understand the doctrine of backsliding. And so we can answer these questions. If salvation is for everybody, and if it's the will of God, the biggest will of God there is, if there were ever a big will of God, then why doesn't God get what he wants? This is where the Calvinist rejects that. The Calvinist can't handle the concept that our sovereign Lord doesn't get what he wants. So their simple solution is, then what he wants is for these people to be in hell. Because if he didn't want that, he would get what he wants. That's their logic. I reject it because I believe in free will, as does the rest of the Bible. We understand that soteriology is a very complex doctrine. With this in mind, we now know how to answer the previous questions. Why are there lost people in the world? They've rejected Christ. They've turned their back. They've hardened their heart. They've pulled their shoulder. They resisted God. Why will hell be full? Same reason. Why won't everyone get saved? Same reason. That's why we're trying to get into all the world and preach the gospel. Why is a simple prayer not salvation? Because there's a lot more to say, Jesus, save me. Even though we understand whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that is just the beginning. We get all this simplicity, even though it's a very nuanced and complex subject. We understand we have to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto us. That's what Jude says, contend for the faith. Why can't we say you can't go to heaven without faith in Christ? Why, why, do we can, say, why can we say that? Because it's the absolute truth. I wish these fam, famous, fancy, glitzy preachers who get on these pagan talk shows, I wish they'd grow a backbone, a spine, and a voice and tell them, hey, listen, interviewer, you're going to hell without Christ. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way? Yes. Yes, I believe is the only way that's why I'm on your show right now to tell you and to use your audience for free. Use your platform to tell the world you need Jesus. You'll go to hell without him. He's very exclusive. We're not confused on this subject, though other smiley rich preachers might be. I'm not against smiling. It's a lot of fun. And money's better than being poor. But when you're smiley and rich, but you don't know what your doctrine is, you're a moron and you haven't earned the platform you use. Huh. you know smiling does make the medicine go down better but I see more about Jesus having eyes of fire and out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword it doesn't ever say anything about like a candy popsicle stick or something <laughs> huh. one of those pop rings it's a two-edged sword and I think sometimes when the Lord preached everybody just stood still because to walk away might have been certain death just stand here and take it he'll be done in a minute You don't even see the Pharisees flee when he's chewing them out. Matthew 28 saying, whoa, whoa, or 25. Whoa, 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 whoa. They just sit there. They just take it to the chin. I think they were too paralyzed with fear in the presence of the lovey-dovey Jesus to walk away and interrupt his sermon. Even those morons knew not to interrupt the preacher. Even those morons who were going to hell knew not to interrupt the preacher even though they're the ones being nailed on the chopping block. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Eight times he says, hypocrites. Where's that huggy Jesus in the pink cloth? I was in Seattle years ago, went to the art museum, and I got so mad. You couldn't do it now. They'd arrest you or charge you with a hate crime. Um, But we went to the Renaissance. I went there for a Da Vinci exhibit. And it had all of his architectural and engineering stuff, and that was pretty cool. But then we went to the second floor, and there was this fancy Renaissance picture, and there's Jesus on the Samaritan well, and he's leaning back on the well, and he had on this pink robe that was blowing in the wind. And then he had on this purple tunic, and it was blowing in the wind. And I remember sitting there looking at it, and I said out loud, why do they make Jesus look so gay? I really don't think he was in a repose like that wearing pink and light blue. Why they got to make Jesus look queer? You can't say that in Seattle now. Somebody'll tackle you. But I still ask the question: We forget this Jesus we're dealing with. Twice he took the time to make a whip, weaving in the rocks and the stones. Meanwhile, they're still doing their business in the temple. They probably Jesus. What's, what's Jesus? He's making a whip again. Leave the Lord alone. Leave him alone. Just, just. When's he going to be done? When you hear the screaming stop. We'll know once everybody comes running out. We forget that's our God. That's our Savior when he first was anointed and right before he went to the cross. He cleansed the temple twice. He drew blood. He turned over tables. He destroyed economics of the temple and whipped people, human beings. And it was the zeal of my father's house that did that. Where's the hugs? Where's the buddy Jesus? None. None. And when he comes back, he'll destroy his enemies by stomping them into a valley of mush. No second chances. No purgatory. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Human mush, a horse's bridle deep in goo. And it'll happen in a moment of time. Amen. And we're just misusing him like some cheap Facebook friend. Some of you, that's your walk with Jesus. You're friends with him on Facebook. Because you don't walk with him. You're just Facebook friends. And we all know Facebook friends aren't real friends because you don't even know them. Oh, we're friends on Facebook. Oh, I know them. We're friends on Facebook. When's the last time you talked to me? We, we share memes <laughs> and recipes. That's <laughs> so lame. <laughs> why? Well, we understand what the individual's role is in salvation. We understand why Christians can be saved and have no peace. We understand why Christians can have horrible marriages. We understand maybe why the preacher's kids are horrible. We understand why God has a plan which quite often gets frustrated, grieved, thwarted, quenched, and blasphemed. We get it. But now with all that, let's apply it to healing. Because everybody knows you can work a little harder to make some money. Nobody really is against provision because everybody wants a little bit of money. Even the pagan. Even those Christians that, that bash the prosperity gospel, they have mega ministries themselves. They have vacation homes and six-figure incomes. I grew up in megachurches. They were denominational. They, with their mouth, didn't believe in the prosperity gospel, but with their lifestyles and their million-dollar budgets, hoped for prosperity. And I don't begrudge it. They give some of the biggest givers to world missions, but you can't be big givers to world missions without prosperity. And like I said, to go to their seminaries, you better believe in prosperity because they're not cheap costs a lot of money to have your faith raped these days. It ain't cheap. Faith rape ain't cheap anymore. You're talking 30, 40 grand a year to come out of seminary denying Christ and go destroy your, your denomination. So it's only fair that we apply the same criteria of doctrine to healing and provision when we ask why then doesn't everyone get healed or have their needs supplied. Well, faith begins where the will of God is known. We get it. God wants you all healed. You already believe it. Your body already has an X-Men mutant healing factor in it. Jeff, how many fingernails have you lost? A lot. Did they all grow back? Praise the Lord. Jeff, how much hair have you lost? None. They just relocate. That's what you told me. That was one of your wisest words of wisdom. Pastor, I haven't lost any hair. It's just on a relocation program. (laughs) No, you cut your skin, it heals. Surgeons do this. They purposely cut you open, knowing full well if they staple you right, it'll heal. They take, or you can live without some of your organs. Your body wants to live that bad. Your teeth are designed to fight off nearly everything. The minerals made out of appetite. It's a mineral appetite. Ironic, isn't it? But that's a mineralogy thing. It's spelled differently. It's a calcium fluoride-based mineral. I just think, huh, appetite. Teeth are made out of appetite. So is your soul. It's made out of appetite. Your body's designed to heal it. Your eyes are the fastest recovering cells in your body. Everything about you replaces itself. It wants to work. It fights to live. Until a denominational preacher gets a hold of you, then he talks you into early death at 35, because you got to die something. You know you got to die something. Did Elijah? Did Moses? Did David? So where's your doctrine coming from? Mamaw? Just because mamaw died, mean, bitter, lonely, surrounded by cats, doesn't mean you have to. Those cats laid on her chest and sucked the life out of her. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know cats do that. They are psychotic. They prowl around your yard looking for something to kill. And when they've killed every mole, vole, mouse, they lay on your chest at night. And they think, if your head was a little smaller... Faith <laughs> faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word saved in Romans 10, 17 is sozo. We should know this. We're faith people. And it doesn't just mean eternal salvation. It literally means healing, provision, deliverance, safety, protection. So whoever calls and keeps calling, as the Greek infers, shall be healed, saved, delivered, made whole protected, helped, strengthened. That's what the verse means. We just always apply it to eternal salvation. But we also know if we don't keep calling upon the name of the Lord, you might start denying him and that gets you denied. That's basic doctrine. We know that there are critical doctrines like demonology that help us explain why not everybody gets healed We have critical doctrines like the believer's authority, biblical prayer. Prayer is a lost art. Nobody prays today like our forefathers did 120 years ago, 200 years ago. Nobody spends an hour or two a day in prayer. Churches used to be full of prayer meetings like that. Now we want a five-minute prayer line, and we hope that fixes all the problems we spent 30 years destroying. Pastor Akwoko taught me, son, you pray until things change. That was a man who knew prayer. We understand that we have to have severe doctrines that help us to endure. And unfortunately, some congregations are infantile in their doctrine and they suffer accordingly. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If you don't know how to pray, you suffer. If you don't know kingdom authority, you suffer. I met with missionaries a while back and they were going to a very demonized country. I said, what's your demonology? They didn't even know what that was. And I thought, well, we're in trouble. So what are you going to do if a demon manifests and is choking your child in the crib? Because they had a baby. They said, ask God for help. I said, your kid's doomed. If you have to ask God for help, you don't know your authority. The demon's in your bedroom killing your kid. You're going to bury that baby. So they're going to go to the mission field with zero demonology, even though that's one of the gospel mandates. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall speak with other tongues. They shall cast out devils. Pretty simple thing to do if you know you can do it. See, we're destroyed for lack of knowledge, and faith begins where the will of God is known. And if you don't know the will of God, how can you have faith for it? When dad says, We can do this, you start pulling on Dad. Last night, the kids were like, Dad, you said we could shoot the BB gun. They, I told them the will of Dad. The will of Dad was to go shoot the BB gun. And I forgot what the will of Dad was because I really didn't want it to be the will of Dad anymore because I had other things I wanted to do. But they start reminding Dad of the will of Dad. Dad, you said. Dad, you said. I said, okay, let's do it. Before I could turn around, the kids are already in the backyard getting everything set up because they're excited to claim what Dad promised. And my wife said, you promised. Like, yeah, you're right. Let's go shoot that pot. Hope it doesn't ricochet at us. It did a few times. But this is Tennessee. Shooting BB guns should be a little dangerous. Amen. And your four-year-old should know how to shoot a BB gun. And Bud Bud now knows how to shoot a BB gun. He's good at it. He wears mama out with the Nerf gun regularly. He finds great sport in shooting her in the rear end. which I think is hysterical. She's like, (laughs) whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but you have to know that you can call for him to answer. We also understand with healing, what's your role in it? Just like what's your role in your own salvation? Jesus paid for it, but you got to believe, you got to call, you got to obey. What's your role in healing? God can't heal you if you eat yourself to death. You want a miracle so you don't lose your toes to diabetes, but the doctor was dealing with you about your sugar addiction 30 years ago. The will of God was never for you to lose your toes or be a type two diabetic, but you showed up and worked that one in. What about healthy living? Do you take care of your body? Do you go to the doctor for regular exercise? It'd be much rather better to catch colon cancer when it's small, than all of a sudden you're stage four and you're bleeding. It's easier to have faith When you do routine maintenance? How about the words of their mouth? How about did you live a life of drugs and alcoholism? Because it's really hard to get some miracles when you've destroyed and burned the whole house down. We understand this when you've lived this long enough. You understand all the nuances. So, my purpose this morning was to point out the hypocrisy and the lack of logic when it comes to, well, I don't think God's will is to heal everybody. Why? Well, not everybody gets healed. By that logic, not everybody gets saved because it's not always God's will. But you don't do it. How many of you have a loved one you're still praying for to get saved? Every hand here, why don't you give up? Obviously, it's not God's will. Obviously, it's not. That's every one of your hands went up. You're all still praying that God would save one of your loved ones. Why are you still praying? Why are you still asking, seeking, knocking, despite all the odds, despite everything you see, despite all your sight? Why are you still seeking God for your loved one's salvation? Because you found a Bible promise and you became convinced in your heart it was the will of God for him to be saved or her to be saved. He's not willing that any of your loved ones should, be peri- should perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. So you still believe. Amen. Sounds like Hebrews. These all saw the promises and were persuaded of them and embraced them, saw them afar off, but they died in faith. They never received the promises, but they died in faith. At the same time, if you were to ask denominational folks, how many of you ever asked God to heal you? Everybody would. How many of you are still believing for God to heal you? Not hardly any hands. Same promises, same rules. Same caveats, same nuances, same exemptions. We don't quit. We understand God wants us saved. He wants us prospering. He wants us healed. If you truly don't believe God always wants you healed, roll dice for the next time you need medical treatment. Because if you're convinced he wants to teach you something through sickness, don't you dare seek medical treatment. If you think he wants you poor, don't you dare take the next stimulus check. If you really think you can learn something from poverty, get with Luke. He'll take you to the homeless camp and drop you off. But I don't know if they're learning anything from God. and I don't think the cancer patient's learning anything from God. My point this morning was to show the hypocrisy and really the ignorance doctrinally. Does everybody get healed? Nope. Does everybody get rich? Nope. Does everybody prosper? Nope. Does everybody get saved? Nope. Does every Christian have a wonderful marriage? Nope. Does every Christian walk in the fruit of the Spirit? Nope. Is every Christian faithful to church? Nope. And we have explanations for all this, but it doesn't change the will of our God and the power of faith. And so until we get what God says He wants to give us, we keep believing, we keep thanking. We're strong in faith, giving thanks unto God. That's what we do. Amen? So whatever you're believing God for, praying, you make sure you got at least three or four scriptures. Say, Lord, your word says, Lord, your word says, Lord, your word says, and you keep fighting. Like Pastor Jeremy preached to us Wednesday night, you make sure your mountain knows your voice. And what I heard, this is what I wrote down, make sure your voice is grating to that mountain. I want my voice to grate on that mountain because that's what it's supposed to do. Winnow that thing down, just grind it down, get out of my way, get out of my way to the mountain just says, I'm leaving. I can't stand it anymore. That's what you do. Jesus said, you continue in prayer. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. Because everybody that asks, gets. Everybody that seeks, finds. And everybody that knocks, it will be opened. But if you just give up, you're not going to have it for sure. Amen. All right. was pretty good preaching. A lot of scripture. And we even got some cat jokes in there, too. So you know it's a good sermon. <laughs>